Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining um, our Home Sweet Home webinar about important concepts in residential real estate transactions. Uh, we're very excited to be hosting this uh, webinar and have some great speakers. Um, Yari? So first up, we have Paul Metzger, attorney at Adam Dash & Associates. Paul has experience with real estate transactions, state planning, landlord-tenant disputes, and family law matters. We have Josh Ribner, attorney at Guild Martin. He represents buyers, sellers, and lenders in the acquisition, financing, and sale of residential and commercial property. And he also uh, represents developers through phases of condominium conversion and unit sales, ranging in size from two to over 300 units. We also have Melissa Lee from Dalton and Feingold. She's been working in the real estate industry for 10 years. And she began her real estate practice as an associate closing refinance loans and has since grown her business representing buyers, sellers, lenders, investors, and developers from the greater Boston area to the North Shore. My name is Stephanie Faraci. I'm an attorney at Morgan Lewis and co-chair of the Fundamentals Committee with the BBA. Um, I have a wide-ranging uh, general real estate practice representing clients in acquisitions, dispositions, and financings. And then my um, co-chair, Yadi Sanchez from Goulston and Stores, is also a real estate lawyer who provides clients uh, with valuable assistance in the development, permitting, zoning, acquisition, disposition, financing, and related matters. Um, and she represents clients in the development of mixed-use office, retail, institutional, and multifamily residential projects. So here's a quick agenda uh, for today's webinar. We're gonna hit on residential leasing with Paul, uh, residential condominium law, and then title clearance. And then we left about 10 minutes at the end of the webinar for questions. So feel free to send questions um, as you have them, we can collect them and then um, review them at the end of the webinar. So with that, Paul. Yeah. Good morning, or I guess good afternoon now at this, at this point, folks. Uh, my name is Paul Metcher. I am an attorney at Adam Dash & Associates. We are a small practice in Somerville. Um, I'm going to talk to you today about kind of some basics about residential leasing, landlord-tenant law, um, and like a one little bonus thing for how it might relate to conveyances. Um, so we can jump right into it um, with my first slide. Um, so I wanted to start with just kind of a little spiel about how residential leasing landlord tenant is an area of real estate practice that doesn't really take a lot of time to learn the basics. You know, there's not a lot of rules. Um, you can kind of sort of get some mini trial experience in an adversarial setting um, and kind of a value add. You know, if you're looking to enter the legal job market, you already are in practice and maybe you're at a firm that doesn't handle landlord tenant matters. It is an area of the law that's pretty easy to teach yourself quickly. Um, you know, I've been in practice, this is now my third year. This was the first thing that my office handed me when I started here. Um, and I think that I feel like I had the important rules and general basics down within about a month of, you know, doing intake calls and starting to, you know, get into that area of practice. Um, so I wanted to provide you with kind of basic resources for how to start out getting into landlord tenant law and what resources you need to be looking at. Um, you know, there's the uniform summary process rules. 
which are relatively straightforward compared to some other civil procedure things. There are only 13 rules. If it's not covered by um, the summary process rules, you would then just defer to mass rules of civil procedure. Um, you know, there are housing court standing orders that are always changing and that you should be apprised of and looking at, um, you know, there's one that they just came out with um, about court procedures post COVID um, because there was a standing order in place during COVID that really changed how the timelines and deadlines for, for cases came. Um, they pretty much upset the entire regime of the timeline for summary process. It's usually very quick with very defined deadlines. Um, the clerks aren't the ones usually giving you a trial date. You kind of have to figure it out from the rules. Um, during COVID, that has changed a lot. And there'll be a new standing order that goes into effect in June that will be kind of how the housing courts will operate post-COVID. Um, so it's always important to kind of be aware of those standing orders and making sure that, you know, you're staying on the up and up with little nitty-gritty details that, you know, might not necessarily be in the rules. Um, Chapter 186 is kind of the broad overarching statute to go to um, for really any landlord-tenant basic thing in terms of conflict between the parties. Um, you know, it defines the types of tenancies, security deposits, notices to quit, how to handle those things. Um, it covers retaliation. Um, really, it's it's a kind of there are other statutes um, that are out there that I think you would find in research and as you join uh, or gain more practice experience. Um, that said, 186 really is the best place to start. Um, it's your bread and butter of, of landlord tenant practice. Um, I, I mentioned local rules. So I practice in Somerville. Um, Somerville has a specific document that needs to be served at the inception of a tenancy or I guess given with the rental paperwork, as well as when you're serving a notice to quit, there's information about tenant resources uh, that's in multiple languages. And those are little kind of important details to know um, if in your particular area of practice and your local kind of geography and local ordinances so that you don't trip over, you know, these little details that could hurt a case if you end up in the summary process arena in housing court or district court. Um, you know, I list basic secondary resources. There is tons of MCLE, mass practice, mass bar association stuff that you can find on Westlaw, Nexus, whatever service your firm or law school uses um, that can, you know, give some good intros and basics about, you know, where to go, where to find things, um, because it's not super complicated. There are some good um, secondary sources. And I throw masslegalhelp.org on here um, because it has a lot of basic statements of law. And I often will go there if there's something that I haven't seen in a little bit. And it's very you know, comprehensive in terms of its simplicity. So I like to go there oftentimes for statements of law um, and get an idea of what I'm doing and then go and actually find the statute that they're talking about so that I you know, have a, a fully apprised and well-informed opinion on, on what the statute is exactly saying in terms of what the party's rights and obligations are. Um, so on basics, that's all I have, and we'll move on to security deposits. Um, so security deposits are one of the biggest places in landlord-tenant um, interactions that landlords find themselves in hot water. Um, it is a pretty onerous statute. The requirements require the landlord to put security deposit in a separate interest-bearing account uh, located in the Commonwealth, 
not subject to claims by the landlord's creditor can be transferred to a subsequent owner. If the tenancy is longer than a year, you need to be paying interest or providing a statement of what the interest generated on the security deposit was during the year that the tenant lived there. If they move out at the end of the year, you need to pay them that interest. It's usually nominal. Um, I get a, I'm a renter myself. My landlord is very thorough and I get a quarterly statement and I usually get 10 to 15 cents, something like that. Um, so it's one of those things that I understand a landlord wants it to protect themselves and protect the property. Um, I often urge landlords, if they can help it, to not even take a deposit. Um, the, so I guess backing up for a second, the security deposit statute carries the possibility of triple damages. Um, and because it's so challenging to follow and it's a bit meticulous and it's a very black and white statute, um, non-compliance can be a, a big a big drawback for a landlord, exposing them to triple damages for maybe an honest mistake, a clerical error, just something mindless. Um, so you know, I often will tell landlords, you know, if you're if you can help it and you you know have well vetted the tenants, don't even bother with the deposit because you know I'm not holding your hand through how to deal with the security deposit and how to handle it, and oftentimes you know they just will do something just not exactly right, not in compliance with the statute, and it's an opening to, to tenants. Um, and that kind of brings me to my next my next point where, you know, I will often, you know, get a call from a prospective tenant and, you know, they have, um, you know, landlord's not fixing something, it's cold, what have you, you know, uh, there's molds, things like that. Um, my first question is often, did you pay the landlord a security deposit? Um, and this isn't to get the landlord on a technicality, but I am trying to elicit from the tenant, you know, did the landlord follow all of the formalities of the security deposit statute? And if they didn't, um, it's usually a good opening for trying to accomplish what the tenant is looking for. Um, you know, it's a black and white statute that has meaningful triple damages, usually from the amount of the deposit. So it's a good way to gateway, or it's a good gateway to to leverage other claims. Um, you know, an example in a recent matter that I handled, I was approached by a tenant who were very unhappy with their landlord. Um, you know, they had a lot of minor things that were wrong in the apartment, like a toilet that was constantly running. Um, you know, cabinets that didn't close properly. Um, you know, overall kind of minuscule things in the grand scheme of things. But the landlord didn't follow the security deposit statute, but the tenant still had six months left in their lease um, and they just really wanted to leave. So by the landlord not following the statute, you know, we sent a demand letter, we demanded triple damages. You know, the landlord's response was, hey, there's still six months left on this lease. And, you know, these violations of the sanitary code probably aren't enough to get your client out of the lease. And I said, yeah, you're right. Um, you know, would you settle for single damages on the security deposit? My client gets out of the lease um, and my client, you know, got what they wanted. They moved on to a better living situation and, you know, they don't have to deal with the landlord that was, you know, making their life uncomfortable. Um, so that's kind of where I focus on practical problem solving in landlord tenant stuff. Um, so often the um, dollar amounts, unfortunately, are small claims amounts. Um, and, you know, it's important to be asking whether you're advising a landlord or a tenant, you know, how much time is left on the lease? How much is the rent? Um, 
And, you know, if it's a tenant and they've got a couple of months left on their lease, you know, is it worth them, you know, sticking it out and just moving on and, and being done with it and, you know, them avoiding the headache of being involved in some sort of, of litigation and oftentimes, you know, your lease is up, let's just get you out of there and you can get into a better living situation. Um, I'll touch more on, on landlord stuff in terms of like moving out um, and maybe how to get a tenant out that is at the end, but maybe going to summary process isn't best move. Um, but uh, security deposits and moving out. So I see landlords get in hot water with this. Um, they will often, you know, want to keep the whole deposit. You know, this tenant was terrible. They made the experience of renting to them miserable. Um, you know, I just want to hold their deposit. So the deposit at the end of the day is the tenant's property. And the landlord has 30 days from move out to provide the tenant with receipts and or and or estimates of um, proposed repairs that they will be drawing on the security deposit from. So without getting that um, kind of communication from the landlord in writing, the tenant is responsible or is um, obligated rather, sorry, the tenant has the right to receive their entire security deposit back if the landlord doesn't provide those receipts within uh, 30 days. Um, and yeah, just more on practical problem solving, you know, landlord tenant practice is as much trying to meet people where they are and try to come up with solutions for how to improve the circumstances for people, you know, as it is, um, you know, giving legal advice, you're, you're often trying to, you know, figure out how to get someone in a better living situation or a landlord back to getting the property profitable with maybe someone that they've had a relationship with for a long time. Um, so there's, there are, you know, considerations on treating things, I think, practically um, in landlord tenant kind of arena generally without immediately trying to resort to litigation. That may be a function of us as a small practice and that we're, you know, in Somerville in a more pro-tenant area, um, but that's generally been kind of my approach and experience. And um, with that, we can, we can move into to notices to quit. So you have three kinds of, of basic notices to quit. You have a seven-day notice to quit, uh, which is not statutory. That is just uh, by leases. You would put that language into a lease. Um, there's 14-day notices to quit for non-payment of rent. Um, tenants have a statutory right of redemption to make the notice go away by paying their arrears. And then there's the 30-day notice to quit, which is for terminating an at-will tenancy. Um, or for you know a no fault um, eviction, or for uh, with a written lease, you know other violation that might not relate to non payment. Um, so a kind of a, a quirk and kind of an, an awkward thing in landlord tenant practice is uh, rent increases in particular with at will tenancies. So in an at will tenancy to raise someone's rent, you know their the typical setup is that you know they're paying. 30 days every every first of the month. Um, and so what will um, you know need to technically happen to give them a rent increase is you need to terminate their old tenancies and then you need to like offer them the new rent increase and they need to accept it. Um, and so what will often you know happen is is like the landlord will approach me wanting to increase the rent. 
and I tell them, you know, the proper way to do that. And they're like, well, I don't, I don't want to actually serve them a notice to quit. I want to keep them. Um, the statute for a 30 day notice to quit allows you to actually make an offer of a rent increase in that. So while you might have to have the technical language that serves as a notice to quit in there, you can make it a bit friendlier that, you know, we still want to keep you as a tenant, just, you know, your rental rate will, will now be this, um, on, on serving notices to quit. I will often have landlord clients who insist that they serve the notice to quit themselves, um, which isn't prohibited. That being said, just use a constable or a sheriff. Um, make no question of whether you know the notice was delivered, and don't give the tenant an excuse that oh I never got it um, because the landlord just slid a piece of paper under their door, or taped it to their door. Um, so for the past couple of years during COVID, there have been pretty strong rental protections for tenants, um, you know, by submitting a raft application, that's rental assistance for families in transition. Um, by submitting one of those applications, if a family or a tenant had been uh, served with a summons and complaint in a eviction proceeding, that would put the whole thing on hold. Oftentimes, the tenants who were applying for raft would get all of their arrears paid and then so there's nothing anymore for the landlord to evict them for um that is all going away or has gone away within the last couple of weeks and now there's a push in the legislature to try to maintain some of that unrelated to covid and to you know provide that safety net for some tenants who might find themselves in a tough spot um, unable to pay rent in between jobs or some other transitory period in their life um so that's something to certainly worth keeping an eye on. Um, you know, back to practical problem solving with, um, you know, trying to maybe avoid the summary process arena, because at present, you know, the housing courts are quite backed up. And in the past, I believe kind of the conventional wisdom was the absolute quickest you could evict someone under normal circumstances is about 50 days. Um, I have several housing court matters that have been just, you know, sitting in housing court for a long time. It's been, I just got a trial date in one matter after waiting for a year. Um, so there is, you know, there are avenues to try to move that along and avoid it. So, you know, you have someone, you want a tenant that you want out, um, you know, they, it looks like it could be a fight or you just want it to move more quickly, um, you know, an approach that can be done is you approach the tenant and say, hey, I will pay you to leave. And you basically do a release of claims. Um, you know, you get the tenant to move out. If the tenant doesn't move out, they will have signed an agreement that says that, you know, you can petition the court to essentially, you know, skip all of the long drawn out um, part of the summary process case, go to the court and apply to get an execution or apply for a judgment first and then get the execution. Um, but it's obviously a lot quicker than going through the entire summary process case for the landlord to, to regain possession. Um, so we can go to just my last, I think, couple of points that I have on the next slide. So a couple of common fact patterns. Um, Non-payment of rent is very straightforward. A tenant has fallen behind on rent. So you serve them a 14-day notice to quit. Um, and get the case kicked off that way. Um, a kind of piece of tenant advising that I like to caution um, in regards to non-payment of rent. Sometimes a tenant will get served with a non-payment of rent notice to quit because they have withheld rent 
believing that they are withholding rent properly because the landlord has failed to make repairs, some other justified reason. Um, even if you're justified and you're in completely in the right and withholding your rent because the landlord's not upholding their end of the bargain, doesn't stop them from still serving you a notice to quit. And now you have to defend a suit. Um, so, you know, I urge extreme caution in tenants who want to withhold rent. Um, it's a pretty extreme remedy. And even if you're right, there's a pretty good chance you're still going to get served a notice to quit. Um, to kind of bolster tenants in that position, you know, you're going to want them to contact their local board of health or inspectional services department to get a inspector out there to enforce the state sanitary code. Um, the inspectors are generally pretty thorough and will, you know, write a report and they can order the landlord to make repairs. Um, with a report like that, if the landlord still isn't doing it, well, you now have, you know, a document from a neutral party whose job it is to inspect these things. Your grounds for withholding at that point are much stronger. Um, and I wouldn't encourage anybody to withhold rent without at least something having been done by the local board of health um, where the unit is located. Um, another common one is, is a tenant who is subletting without permission. Um, generally another pretty straightforward one. Um, you would give them uh, likely a 30-day notice to quit depending on you know the language of the lease or whether it's an at-will tenancy. Um, on, on the seven-day notices to quit, I missed something on that. So according to the lease. So if I had a landlord client who wanted to serve a notice to quit and the lease technically allowed for seven day for something like subletting without permission. Um, now we are in the one of the most pro-tenant jurisdictions in the entire country. And I'm personally not looking for any reason for a judge to give me or my client a hard time. And I usually, you know, unless the client, you know, feels strongly about it, I err on the side of caution and I recommend a 30 day notice to quit uh, nine times out of 10 uh, in, in that type of circumstance. Um, the other common fact pattern from the tenant side that I see pretty frequently is a retaliating landlord. Um, the tenant often will have been asking for repairs and they aren't being made. Um, you know, that's kind of a lower level one, but you know, at that point they are an annoyance of the landlord. They serve them with a notice to quit or a notice of non-renewal, something to that effect. Um, the kind of more serious types of cases are when the tenant has contacted the Board of Health, gotten an inspection, and then the landlord serves them with a notice to quit. So landlords are prohibited, or I guess there's a, a presumption that landlords' um, actions against tenants, like serving a notice to quit, rental increase, uh, notice of termination, notice of non-renewal, anything really like that, the landlord has a presumption against them for six months after the time the tenant exercises their rights. And um, that's not to say that landlords can't overcome that presumption with evidence for some other reason that they made the decision to serve a notice to quit. That being said, um, you know, if someone contacts a local board of health and two days later they are served with a notice to quit, that's really good evidence that the landlord is retaliating. Um, I see that one pretty frequently. Um, you know, on being in private practice generally for considerations with prospective tenants. Um, so I would say that the majority of my clients are landlords. Landlords can typically afford our, our rates more. You know, it's more likely in a landlord tenant private practice that landlords are going to be more of your clients. Um, tenants are just tougher take cases to take. Um, the damage amounts are often below small claims threshold. Um, 
they often can't afford your retainer and you might end up feeling bad sometimes like wanting to help these people who are calling or that you've received inquiries from um, and not being able to take their case so you know it's worth being able to put push uh point them to like local legal aid groups in your jurisdiction or municipality um you know mass legal help that i referred to earlier has a ton of self-help templates for for tenants um and very good like demand letter templates moving out letters things like that um you know the housing courts have the lawyer of the day program um and it's always good to know you know who is responsible for enforcing the state sanitary code in your jurisdiction whether it's the local board of health inspectional services um those are really strong enforcement tools that tenants can use without having to hire an attorney um the inspectors are, you know, empowered under the state sanitary code to cite landlords, order them to, to make repairs within certain amounts of time. Um, if things are really bad, they can order the unit condemned. So um, good things to, to be able to provide to people that might not be able to afford your services, but you've had an introductory conversation with them and you don't want to leave them completely hanging. Um, and with that, I can just touch on a couple of miscellaneous points that I had rounded up. Um, so a, a landlord caution is some landlords will try to pass on directly or not directly. They will give a flat fee of things like gas or water to their tenants and they don't have submeters installed. Um, so it's like a hundred dollar a month charge for water, something stupid like that. Um, that's an illegal resale of utilities without the proper submeeting and just as something you know to be aware of when advising a landlord and reviewing leases hey you know do you actually have submetering um and i will uh, you know last thing uh you can transfer by right from housing court to district court um, tenants can do that before it's time to answer um and then estoppel certificates are something that you want when you are representing a seller or a buyer so these documents tell you information about the the tenants that are in the building what their rent is um, last month's rent things like that when the lease expires at minimum you want that to disclose whether or not the tenant has any claims against the seller um you know even better you would get the tenant to waive the claims um, and can only enforce new claims against the new owners um, you know, I have represented sellers and the buyer side doesn't ask for it, um, the estoppel certificates. So it's not something you're necessarily firmly to looking to bring up as a seller, but you might still want to try to get a release from the tenants before closing um, when you're selling. And if you're representing a buyer, you want language in the purchase and sale agreement that obligates the seller to provide the certificates. Um, I went a little long there. I'm sorry, everybody else. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Josh Ridner with Gilmartin McGency. Um, we're a uh, residential and commercial real estate firm. Uh, we do solely transactional work, um, everything from helping people buy their first home, sell, uh, refinance, back when refinancing was a thing, um, and then um, development work. So condominium projects, hotels, um, sometimes projects that are both of those. Some of our projects are current ones uh, downtown, uh, 150 Seaport, the St. Regis, uh, the Raffles Project um, on Stewart Street, um, and a few others that are uh, coming up. So I'm just going to take a few minutes 
uh, and do kind of an overview of some elements of condominium law. I know everybody was given a uh, handout, two pages. Um, that's a form, a document that we give all of our buyers uh, that are buying a condominium unit. And it's just to help them think about potential issues um, that may come up down the line, things they might want to know or be prepared for uh, when they enter into this transaction. So the way condominiums work generally is, um, let me back up a step. So a condominium can either be what we call a conversion. So taking an existing building that's two or more units and converting that from a single ownership to condominiums, in which case each unit can be used or uh, owned by a separate individual or entity um, or a new created condominium. So a new building going up and it's intended to be a condominium from the beginning. Whether they're two units or 300 units, um, the baseline of the structure is the same. You need two uh, governing documents. The first is a master deed, and the second is either a declaration of trust or a set of bylaws. Um, the master deed forms the condominium. So that's what takes the property, the land and the building and makes it into how many ever units. So the master deed generally will start off with a description of the building and we'll have in it a, a legal description for the land, either a meets and bounds description or a plan description. Then it'll get into the units. It sets out the name of the condominium, the number of units, whether they're residential, commercial, some other use, whether there's any units that are um, affordability uh, restricted, how many there are, what those units are. Um, the next thing generally that you'll find in the master deed, and in my opinion, this is one of the most important, um, is going to be a description of the unit boundaries. So where does the unit end and the common area begin? So is it the interior surface of a wall or floor? Is it an exterior surface, um, like the outside of a building? Is it somewhere in between, uh, somewhere in the studs and whatnot? And we're seeing a lot of, um, one thing to look for is there's a lot of uh, what's called uh, New York measuring going on now, where the unit is defined as going to the exterior walls. So the outside of the wall of your unit, which means there's square footage that's included that you can't use because it's occupied right by that wall or a window or a door or whatever. So we're seeing a lot of that these days. Um, but that's important for what can you change, where in the unit can you make improvements, um, and also gets into maintenance issues. If something breaks, is it inside your unit or outside your unit, and whose responsibility is it? Um, the master deed will go into those things. It'll also define whatever um, uh, exclusive use areas there are. So if there's parking, storage, balconies, uh, things like that, as well as common elements, if there's a common pool or a clubhouse or tennis courts or whatever, um, a club room, which is becoming a big thing now, um, it'll go into that as well. Um, you'll also see restrictions on use there. This is really important when you're representing a buyer for a condo unit is to help them understand those. So that's what will go into um, can they have pets? If so, is there a size requirement? There's often breed requirements because the association isn't going to want uh, breeds that increase the cost of their insurance. Um, can you smoke in the building? That's a big one lately. Um, and can you lease uh, your unit out? 
So can you have a tenant? And if so, how many tenants can you have? How long does the lease have to be? There might be a cap on the number of units that can be rented out at any one time. It might be 25%, it might be 35%, um, it might be a total prohibition. Um, so when you're looking through these documents, important thing to know is, is you know, as, as long as the, the rules and descriptions don't violate some other law, the condo statute allows you to really design how this is going to look. Um, the documents also go into how are they amended, what's the process, how many people have to vote for it. And then at the end, you'll find usually an exhibit that will set out uh, a description of each unit. So it'll say what the square footage is, what floor it's on, how many rooms, and give a percentage interest. So each unit is allocated a percentage interest in the uh, building, in the association, in the trust. Um, those obviously have to equal 100. Um, the main uh, place where the percentage interest from a practical standpoint come in is relative to the budget. Any special assessments, any um, budgetary changes, that's your percentage of the total that you're going to be uh, paying. Um, the Declaration of Trust or the bylaws is then the, the governing document. So the master deed sort of creates this legal entity of a uh, condominium. The Declaration of, uh, and it's it, it, the, the rules of what's required of the common elements are managed or governed by either a board of managers or a board of trustees. And that's what you would find set out in the bylaws or the Declaration of Trust. Um, that'll tell you how many trustees there are, what their term is. Um, how many are needed for trustee action? If it's a small association of two or three units, it's probably going to be two or three trustees, one per unit, and you probably need a unanimous vote. Um, if it's 300 unit condominium, you might have a board of five or seven trustees, and you likely only need a majority vote. Um, but their real job is to administer the rules and regulations of the association and to maintain the building and the grounds and the things that comprise the condominium um, to benefit the unit owners uh, who hold the beneficial interest in the association. Um, so it'll go into their uh, what they're allowed to do. Can they open bank accounts and hire contractors and consultants and management companies and repair people and whatnot? Um, That document, again, uh, can be changed over time, just like the master deed. So we'll go into what amendment provisions are um, and, and things like that. At the end, often you'll find a, a set of rules and regulations um, that goes into sort of day-to-day -day stuff. Is there time limits and day limits on when you can move in or move out? Do you have to have certain colored uh, window coverings facing the exterior of the building? Often buildings, they all want them to be you know, white or off-white. That's generally what we're seeing now, at least in the larger buildings. You won't find that provision in a two or three unit usually. Um, but that's sort of the document piece. So when we're either creating a new condominium or representing a buyer uh, who's buying in a unit, we look through all these elements and, and go through them with the buyers so that they really understand what they're getting into because they're buying a piece of real estate, but they're also buying into a business in a sense. And um, there's a lot of places where, um, you know, they need to be mindful of, of, of what's going on and how it's run. Um, Got a question. Um, sent a condo questionnaire ahead of time. Should this, should the real estate agent or the attorney be asking the management company and/or trustees these questions? Um, great question. Um, I always send them to clients. 
um, and whether they uh, and they 99% of the time are going to send them uh, through the broker. Um, sometimes, the, if you know, if it's a small association, the seller uh, will answer them. If it's a larger association, you hope to get the management company. Um, the management company doesn't generally like interacting with lawyers and answering these questions for us, but for a prospective buyer, we find that they they get a little more traction uh, on those. But, um, you know, we send those, those questions out to our buyer clients with our initial engagement email. So they have them from the first day that we're engaged with them. And, um, you know, hopefully there's enough time in the transaction for them to get some or all of the answers. Uh, the bigger the association, uh, the bigger the greater number of units, more likely the association is going to have their own sort of set of stock answers. Um, so they'll have a form that you can obtain for them or purchase from them, um, uh, their own condo questionnaire, and it'll cover the overwhelming majority of the things um, that are on the one that we have. It'll go into budgetary restrictions. It'll go on to you know, are there any projects planned that aren't budgeted for where everybody's going to have to contribute at that time? Um, and then, you know, that's really important for a buyer so that they can go in uh, with their eyes open, especially on the financial end. And that's it. I'm not sure I'm supposed to start talking until I think my face shows up on the screen. Anyway, hi guys, I'm Melissa Lee. I'm an attorney with Dalston Fengold. We are a multi-service law firm. We do residential real estate, commercial real estate. Uh, we do um, trust and estates planning and we handle litigation matters as well. We have offices all over Massachusetts and also in New Hampshire. Um, so my job is just residential real estate transactions. So to kind of tie everything together, you know, if I'm representing somebody who's buying or selling a multifamily property, um, everything that went over, we went over at the beginning of this presentation is important for us to know. If I'm buying, if I'm representing somebody who is buying or selling a condominium, everything that Josh just went over is important for us to know. But the topic that I'm going to talk about for the next few minutes is really at the crux of a residential real estate attorney's responsibility, which is certifying clear title. So no matter if you're buying condo, single family property, investment property, multifamily, um, when our job really comes down to uh, making sure the title is clean and conducting the closing. And so the slides, I go over some really basic information um, and I cite a case law and I cite a statute there if you wanna dive into it a little further. But basically, if you've ever purchased property outside of Massachusetts, or if you have family or friends that do it outside of Massachusetts, chances are they're not going to have to hire an attorney. Um, a lot of times title companies will serve that role of looking at the title and sitting with the buyer. And basically just a notary is the one who's conducting the closing and having uh, the buyer sign and date the documents. In Massachusetts, we do not allow anyone to do that other than an attorney. Um, it can be in a paralegal under the supervision of an attorney, but we are a little unique in that regard. So 
what I find in my practice is that sometimes I'm the only attorney people run into in their entire lives. Um, or, you know, when they're buying and selling properties, the only time people really deal with an attorney. Um, obviously, there's a lot of other instances. Um, if they are a renter having an issue, they might need an attorney for that or a family law attorney. But by and large, people seem to get a little um, intimidated or, you know, worried about, I have to get a lawyer for this. And then they get told by a family member that they didn't need a lawyer when they bought their house in New Hampshire. So they get a little nervous, but what'll usually happen is that a uh, lender or the real estate agent will introduce you to the potential client who's buying and selling property and say, this person specializes in residential real estate and they can help you out. And then we just explain our role and the guidelines in Massachusetts that require us to be involved and people are at that point a little bit less nervous about attorney being part of the deal. Um, and so what I'm gonna talk about, we can go to the next slide, is basically how the process works um, with regard to title clearing. And so what we need to do is start off with a 50 year title search. That's basically the industry standard. And we're looking for title defects. We're looking for things like incorrect documents, incorrectly signed documents, um, incorrectly notarized documents, uh, documents where people's interests have not been fully uh, waived or conveyed. Um, I had an issue once when I was representing a seller and it turned out per the buyer's attorney's title exam that there was somebody out there that basically still owned 25% of this condo and a couple of attorneys had missed it um, throughout the multiple conveyances. So my clients bought it. It didn't come up when the seller for them bought the property. It didn't come up. But when this particular buyer ran their title report, they saw that the way that someone's estate was settled was that one of their sons still owned a claim. And so what happens is that when a title problem comes up, it's the seller's responsibility to clear the title uh, pursuant to the purchase and sale agreement. And so as a seller's attorney in that particular instance, I had to reach out and find this person. Luckily, they were still living in Massachusetts. Um, I did some you know, detective work online and found their phone number and I gave them a call and I said, I know this is a weird phone call to be getting right now, but my name is Melissa Lee. I represent the current owners of you know, 123 Main Street. And this is the situation. And we're gonna need you to sign a release deed to convey your interest in the property so my clients can finish their sale. Um, so it sounds a little crazy. That kind of thing is more rare um, than the typical transaction, but things like that can come up. Um, and so luckily with that situation, the gentleman was actually very cooperative and he was more than happy to have you know, me send someone to his house who can notarize his signature on a release deed and were able to help the clients complete the sale of the transaction. Similarly, we ran into you know, a different transaction, um, a, a situation where somebody who had since moved to Florida, uh, owned an interest in the property, came up on title. And that was a different result because the person who was in Florida wanted something out of the you know, deal. They would said, well, what's the incentive for me to sign a release deed? So we had to negotiate something. So it can get a little interesting like that. Um, a lot of times when you're doing residential real estate conveyancing, it can feel a little um, like you're doing the same thing every day because you're following the same procedures. But when interesting things come up like that on title, and all of a sudden you're playing the role of detective and finding people on Facebook and reaching out to them and making deals to have them sign release deeds, it can be a little interesting. So that's the kind of stuff that we can run into sometimes. And so 
when you're representing a buyer and you tell a seller that there's a title defect, uh, you're kind of at the mercy of the seller and their attorney to make sure they've acknowledged the title defect, that they're working on the title defect. And sometimes um, it's not as satisfactory to me as I would prefer, meaning that the other side isn't moving quickly enough. They might not have the resources or the tools to clear the title problem. And so one of the good things about um, the firm where I am now is that we have an entire title clearing department. So we have paralegals who are dedicated to working on clearing these issues for us on the buyer side, which is a little unique, but it helps us reach closing dates quicker, um, which makes buyers happier, lenders happier, and buyer agents happier. And that's how we, we get business, really. You know, at least in my practice, it's a word of mouth referral system. Um, as much as I'm an attorney, I'm also kind of like a salesperson because I have to work on relationships um, to get those referrals. And so making sure I put customer service um, ahead of other interests and making people happy and reaching de meeting deadlines, that's a huge part of my job to get repeat referrals and repeat business. So um, making sure that we have the resources to get the titles cleared is huge. And so we can't let a closing occur until the title is clean. So we have to make sure that we're on top of it in the same way that we're asking a seller uh, to take care of it too. So um, you'll see here, um, what does, you know, uh, so to back up a little bit, there's a couple of roles an attorney can play in a transaction when you represent a buyer. And so one is their personal attorney who's doing things like, you know, reviewing leases if they're buying something with tenants in it, reviewing condo docs, uh, negotiating a purchase and sales contract. Uh, the other role is the closing attorney role, which is really what I'm uh, mentioning here in the citations and the slides. And so when you're doing that, not only are you looking at 50 years worth of title records, you're also reaching out to the municipality to see if there's any unpaid real estate taxes or municipal utilities like water sewer, because um, the failure to pay those can turn into liens against the property. So making sure those are paid in full is also part of making sure title is clean. Um, and then we get all of the funds in for closing. We sit down with the borrower, we watch them sign the documents, and then we make sure that we bring everything to the registry of deeds for recording. So that's kind of a quick snapshot of what I do day in, day out. Um, like I said, I do focus on just residential real estate. I do um, some condo development work on top of that, but I'm really just dealing with folks who primarily in my practice um, own a two-family, three-family, or four-family and want to turn those into condo units or, you know, a few folks that might be building like a three-unit building from the ground up, but I don't get into the big condo development, but it's a nice way to kind of round out a practice and to, you know, switch up what you're doing day in and day out. Um, I also think that if anyone, you know, in the audience today is considering getting into residential real estate, I have to say it's been really great for me because when you're taking on that like sales role, a lot of times that comes with more flexibility in your day-to-day -day job. And so my job's kind of morphed from a nine to five to something more where I work from home and I sort of dictate my own hours. And as a mom, that's really important for me. Um, and I get to do a lot of, you know, fun events and sit down and have lunches with people and do a lot of education as well, which I really enjoy. So it can be a really fun um, job for in terms of interacting with people and um, having the flexibility 
to have a good work-life balance. So I really like that. And I think that when you get down to things like reviewing title exams and title clearing, it can be really interesting. And like the history major in me comes out when I'm reading the old records and that part's really entertaining for me as well. So that's kind of a quick overview of what the world of residential real estate is. And I know we're getting into the Q&A time for the panel. So if you guys have any questions, uh, please reach out. And I also wanna mention that our firm is always growing. So if you're thinking about, you know, seeking an internship or maybe a job as an associate with us, please send me a resume. Don't hesitate to reach out, you know, especially summer interns and things like that. We're always looking. Um, and so uh, please feel free to send me a resume and reach out with any questions or if I can be a resource in any way, please let me know. Great. Um, thank you so much to all of our speakers today. Um, they're, they've shared their contact information here. Um, we, we do have now a few minutes, about 10 minutes, um, to answer any questions. So feel free to use the chat function um, uh, to submit any questions. Uh, we'll, we'll stick around for a couple of minutes to respond to any questions that you may have. Um, thanks so much, everyone. Um, someone just asked, um, Josh, could you actually repeat uh, your, your response to the first question on, on the with respect to who should be um, asking the management company and or the trustees the, the questions that, that were submitted in the questionnaire? Yeah, no problem. Um, so generally what we do is, um, so we give that uh, ha that handout that you have, we send that to uh, buyer clients in the first um, email that we have with them. So they have it from the beginning. Generally, what will happen is they'll give it to their broker who will then get it to the seller side. Um, but usually we don't interact with the management company. Most management companies won't give us an answer, um, but buyers seem to, and the brokers seem to get better traction on it. Um, the bigger the association, the, the larger uh, buildings, the more units that are there and that are professionally managed, um, they may have sort of a pre-answered um, uh, form uh, that a buyer can purchase or, or obtain um, that'll answer the majority of the questions in that, in that document. Great, thanks so much, Josh. Does anyone else have any other questions? Okay, great, seeing none, uh, we'd like to just thank all of our speakers again, um, Paul Mesher, Josh Rivner, and Melissa Lee. Um, we are very appreciative. If anyone has any other questions, um, you know, after the program, feel free to uh, email um, any of us um, and we'd be happy to, um, to connect after the presentation. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Just want to say thank you for joining us. Thank you to our panel for um, speaking about this today. Hope everyone has a wonderful afternoon. <laughs>